right, good morning. Trace, how are we feeling this morning? How's everybody doing? Everybody feeling good? Great to have you here today. I want to welcome all of you in this room. I want to welcome those of you that are watching online. We know there are people tuning in truly from all around the nation. So thanks for so much for joining us at Trace Online. Hey, I want to start with this. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with my sermon. <clears throat> But how many of you guys are excited? We finally got some good blockbuster movies coming out this summer. Anybody else excited? Like we went a couple years without it. Like I don't know how we survived that, but we got some good ones coming out. I'm not going to lie. Big Top Gun fan. Okay. Big Top Gun fan. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Tom Cruise. Come on, somebody. I know he got a little crazy there for a little while, but he's coming back. But man, third grade, I remember I was in third grade and Top Gun came out and I remember that scene with Tom Cruise riding that motorcycle down the road beside that plane getting ready to take off, right? Highway to, okay, I won't go anymore, but it's actually one of the reasons I got a motorcycle when I could a little bit later in life. And Maverick is coming out this Friday. Come on, somebody. Top Gun, let's go. Let's go. Tom Cruise, please don't let me down like Keanu Reeves did in The Matrix, right? It was horrible. It was horrible, it was horrible, all right. Maybe some of you are Avengers fans and you remember this big blockbuster moment when Tony Stark looked over at Doctor Strange and Doctor Strange held up one. And it was that moment when he was reminding Tony Stark that he had already gone into the future, right, to see all of these millions of different potential realities, but there was only gonna be one way that they were going to beat Thanos. And of course, that came with Tony Stark, which was also Iron Man, losing his life. And this entire moment that unfolded before us was amplified by the significance and the fact that there was only going to be one way. I would argue that in most of our lives, it's intrinsic in us to simplify, to simplify things, to get down to the most significant things in our life. I would call this the principle of one. And you do this whether you know it or not. You may ask the question, hey, what is my greatest priority right now? And you're simplifying things down to one. Maybe, you're, maybe you would you know, approach a new year with, what's my number one goal this year? As a staff here at Trace, we go through something called the four disciplines of execution. And it allows us to put a lot of initiatives that we want to accomplish on the table, but narrow those things down until we get to one wildly important goal that we then focus on for the next about six months. If you're a married couple that's been in my office, you've probably heard me give you this encouragement. And if you never heard me give you this encouragement, then I'll do it now. I believe one of the greatest ways to build a good marriage to a great one is to ask one question as often as possible. What is the number one thing that I can pray for you about right now? And there's a lot of significance that happens when you do that. And a couple specific ways that I would point that out to you is... When you ask your spouse, the most important person in your life, other than Jesus, when you ask them, hey, what's the number one thing that I can pray for you about right now? A couple things happen. You're gonna get to see behind the scenes of what's happening in their life. And you may, you know, sometimes we think that we know what's actually happening in the life of our spouse. But when you ask that question, I promise you, you're going to get surprised of what that answer is. And so now you're starting, <clears throat> excuse me, you're starting to identify more with where your spouse is, and then you're gonna go to your heavenly father and actually intervene on their behalf for the most important thing in, your, in their life. And again, I'll tell you, that can take a good marriage to a great one in no time. If you're new here to Trace, we teach something called D1, and it stands for Disciple One. And it kind of is something that we use around here to remind you that if you're not discipling someone else, 
You should at least be discipling yourself. You should at least be teaching yourself about Jesus. And so we like to set the, ball, the bar really low around here, but we also want it to be effective, so simple but effective. And so this is what we encourage people to do through D1. Read one chapter of the Bible every single day. And when you read that chapter, pay attention to one verse that maybe stands out to you more than others. And then write out one thought on why that particular verse stood out to you. And then do something that not enough of us Christians do. Give God a moment. Give God a minute. And practice something that we call listening prayer or contemplative prayer. Where you're just asking God, God, is there a specific reason why that stood out to me? God, is there something that you want to surface in my life and in my mind and thoughts right now? Because maybe I'm overlooking something. Maybe I'm bypassing something. And that's why this particular verse stood out to me. And so you give God one moment. And then if you want to take that one step further, you share that experience with one person. Because when you share what you're learning with someone else, you're likely going to retain it. You see, when we narrow things down to one, we are forcing ourselves in many respects to focus on and to pick what's most important. And what happens too often in most of our lives, if you'll pay attention, is that we often have a tendency to sacrifice what's most important for what feels urgent. Maybe you can identify with this. There's been many occasions where I've gotten home and it's been a rough season or a stressful season, or maybe it's just been a stressful day and a I've got a lot of things on the table that I'm trying to get caught up on. I'm trying to answer these text messages and phone calls and emails or whatever it may be. And if I'm not careful, I will walk into my house where the five most important people in my life are and I will overlook them the most important for what feels urgent. Never been there? This is why one of the things that I'm trying to practice more often when I get to my house, I have a pep talk to myself in the driveway. And I just tell myself, Aaron, like everybody, your wife and your four kids, maybe they had an incredible day today, or maybe something went incredibly wrong. But what you need to do right now is to make sure that each and every one of them know that you're available if you need to be. Now, I want to be the first to admit I don't always do that well, but it's something that I'm learning to do more often. Maybe you need to write this statement down. What feels urgent is almost never what is most important. What feels urgent is almost never what is most important. And when Jesus walked this earth 2,000 years ago, he often challenged the religious leaders of his day on this very point because the religious leaders felt the urgency and all the rules and the rituals that they were supposed to follow through with, but they did so at the expense of actually loving people and serving people, the people that God had put underneath their care. And so Jesus both, both challenges them, but he also communicates to us very clearly on how it is that we're supposed to live. And I would say it's both through his critique of the religious leaders of his day and how clearly he communicated specific things that we can now arrive today as Christ followers without a doubt, knowing, unmistakably knowing what the most important thing there is for us who claim the name of Jesus. We get a glimpse of this in Matthew 22. And I wanna, before I even jump into this, I wanna caution us that maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time and I'm gonna read some verses that are very familiar to you, but I'm gonna break them down today in a way that I think will add a greater level of significance to our lives 
And so I want you to pay attention to how I build this point. But this is when Jesus is answering a question. In Matthew 22, he's answering a question the religious leaders are posing to him. They're trying to trap him. And they say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So Jesus replied, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now at this point, his audience, again, that would have been made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, they would have started nodding their head and like, okay, yeah, 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 you got this one right, Jesus, you got this one right. But I imagine if I can suggest something to you, I would imagine that in this moment, Jesus kind of slows everything down and says, well, hold on a second, fellas. Like, hold on a second. I'm not done yet. Because the second is like the first. Now, you just need to understand this is the first time that they would have heard it put in this way. They knew the importance of loving your neighbor as yourself. Both of these commandments carry over from the old covenant. But Jesus is answering their question. Yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the second is like the first. He doesn't say in the second is this. He says the second is like the first. In other words, if you don't do the second, you can't do the first. Let me simplify it this way. The way that we love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, is actually by loving other people. Jesus is narrowing everything down to what's most important. Because he knows that if we get this wrong, listen to me, if we get this wrong, the rest of it either takes on the wrong motivation or you will be misguided at some point in your faith journey and settle for what I call pseudo-Christianity. And maybe pseudo-Christianity is where the main focus becomes these hyper-spiritual experiences instead of loving people well. Or just making sure that we know all the laws and the rules instead of rescuing those that are in desperate need of hope. Or learning as much as you possibly can about God, but never showing him through how you live and how you love others. You see, when Jesus answered the question the way that he did, very specific way he answered it, he was saying, guys, this is number one. If you're gonna follow me, like this is your true north. We actually love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind by how we love other people. Now, anytime I talk about this, I think it's important to define love because you and I both know to a great extent the word love has gotten hijacked in our culture to mean a lot of different things, like how we love people is going to be defined a lot of different ways. And so if we follow Jesus, we should probably have a pretty accurate definition of what that kind of love looks like. And the way that we've defined that here at Trace is this way. We believe the fullness of grace plus the fullness of truth is God's complete love. So listen to me, if loving people, if our love for people is without truth, it's not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. If we love people without grace, it's not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, Jesus, it says that Jesus came full of both grace and truth, which means that needs to be represented in the way that we love people. Quick side note, if you want to hear more about that and how we kind of approach that, I did a series back in the fall called Lines, and I preached a sermon called Love Has Lines. If you weren't around to hear that sermon, I would strongly encourage you to go back and watch that. You can look that up on our YouTube page. Now, if you think Jesus is done clarifying this point for us, he's not. Because just like there's ambiguity in our day around this idea and concept of love, there was also ambiguity around this idea of love or loving your neighbor in the time of Jesus. 
I mean, think about it this way. On many occasions, Jesus was criticized for the acts of love that he demonstrated because it wasn't within the framework of the religious behavior of that time. I mean, he healed people on the Sabbath. That was a no-no. Touching people that were unclean like lepers. Eating with people that were on the fringes of society like prostitutes and tax collectors. You see, Jesus fully understood that if loving people was going to be how we show God that we love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind, then we better have a pretty clear demonstration. We better have a pretty clear definition of what it looks like to love people. In John chapter 13, Jesus is going to do something for us. And again, a lot of you know this passage, but Jesus is going to do something for us that I think we might have a tendency to overlook the significance of. What he's going to do is he's going to clarify for us what it looks like to love others. And I believe, I'm going to suggest something, I believe that Jesus waited to, to the last minute possible before he shares what he's about to share. Because what that allowed him to do was live enough life. Like between Matthew 22 and John 13, Jesus lived out his ministry. In other words, he was allowing his followers to observe him. The methods he used the way that he allowed himself to be interrupted. And so now he's going to wait when the time is coming near and he knows his inevitable death is coming. And then he pulls the guys in. It's at the Last Supper. Pulls them in and says, guys, listen, listen, listen. I'm going to give you a new command. Now, you really do need to stop there and understand the significance to this. Because for Jesus to say, I'm going to give you a new command, to some extent, that's provocative. A new command, hold on, like, like we know all the other commands, all the old commands, all 613 of them. You're going to give us a new one? Yeah, guys, listen. I want you to love one another. Let me define that a little bit better. I want you to love one another the way that I have loved you. And if you'll do this, like the people that watch you live, the people that interact with you, your actual neighbors, the people you work with, they're actually going to know that you love me. If you'll love the way that I have loved you, it's actually going to be the best way to point to me. If you love one another the way that I have loved you, all people will know that you're my disciples. Now here's where I want to show you something that sometimes I think we overlook what Jesus is actually doing. I believe in this moment Jesus is taking the greatest commandment, and he's making it the ultimate commandment. Because the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, again, that was carried over from the old covenant, but now we have the life of Jesus. Now we have the life of Jesus demonstrated to us over a three-year period, and Jesus is saying, yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but now you have my life and the way that I have demonstrated how to love, and I want you to put those two together. And now we go from the greatest commandment to what I would argue is the ultimate commandment. And the ultimate commandment combines the life of Jesus, the love of Jesus, his truth, his grace, the gospel. And when we combine these two together, we get the ultimate commandment, which means, church, the absolute best way, the absolute best way that we can show a lost and broken world that God loves them 
is by loving people the way that Jesus modeled it. How? Remember, he points, love people the way that I have loved you. It's pointing to something through service and through sacrifice. Let me get off on a quick detour. Do you know why I think politics is such a poison to the church? Because we've allowed it to divide us and deter us from living out the number one thing that Jesus made abundantly clear. I mean, think about it. It's kind of hard to love people if you're demonizing them at the same time. I heard somebody say once that when the church gets in bed with politics, it gets pregnant. And the baby's not going to look like the father. I like that. When Jesus said to love one another the way that I have loved you, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples, Jesus was telling us as clearly as he could have the best way, church, for people to recognize me in you is to love people and to demonstrate the same kind of love that I demonstrated to you through service and through sacrifice. And this is why, church, there can be no exceptions, which means we love our homeless neighbor, our Muslim neighbor, our black neighbor, our white neighbor, our gay neighbor, our immigrant neighbor, our Jewish neighbor, our Christian neighbor, our atheist and addicted neighbor, our Democrat neighbor, our Republican neighbor, and yes, even our neighbor that is a Patriots fan. Forgive me, Lord, I feel like I've sinned before God and people. You see, way too often this word is used in the Christian language. Way too often. And it shouldn't be. You see, through the ultimate command, when Jesus was narrowing everything down to one, he was not encouraging us to be anti-anybody. It was just the opposite of anything. He was showing us how to be pro-people. Now, I want to be clear here. He's not asking us to excuse sin. He's not affirming false religions. He's not telling us to embrace our culture or to be passive with the gospel. It's always truth and it's always grace. But what he is saying is that in every circumstance, when and where it is possible to love people, and the best place to start, if you don't know what to say, is to serve them or to make a sacrifice for them and to stop replacing what's most important with what feels urgent. Maybe you've experienced this. I don't know how many times I've been driving down the road and I see a situation off to the side somewhere in the periphery and maybe it's a homeless situation or somebody's car's broken down and you know you got people pushing a car on the side of the road or a flat tire or whatever it may be. And I have felt convicted so many times, Aaron, you should probably go do something about that. And then I convinced myself that there's too much urgency in my life for me to take the time out of my day to go help. Ever been there? Can I ask for all of us maybe to do this collectively together today? Because I believe most of us are like the rest of us, which means you've probably experienced this too. That we start saying yes to every single one of those situations that's put in front of us. Because what happens when we don't, church, and this is just one example, there could, there could be several, is when we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and I'm behind the wheel, 
And I feel, it's like, man, I'm supposed to go do something. No, 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 I'm just, I'm too busy right now. I believe what happens in that moment is that because I felt God moving inside of me and I, I shut that down, the next time a situation is presented to me, it's gonna be a little bit easier to say no to. And the next time a situation is presented to you, it's gonna be a little easier for you to say no to. But the opposite is just as true. When we stop sacrificing what's most important for the urgent and we feel God working in the midst of the depths of our soul to do something, to act on something, to say something, to stop, and we say yes to that over and over, we start identifying with the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And who, knew, who knows where those situations will go to because of our obedience to say yes. And so can we collectively just say as a church, we're gonna stop rejecting the Holy Spirit's guidance. We're gonna stop saying no and start saying yes. And don't miss it. When you say yes, you're not just helping somebody. When you say yes and you're offering service and sacrifice, sacrificing your time, you are showing your heavenly father that you love him with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. And if you don't know where to start, maybe a good place to start and practice this is with your actual neighbors. You know why this is such a great place to start is because you don't get to pick your neighbors, do you? And so you're gonna be forced to love people that don't look like you, that don't believe like you, that don't live like you. And I've learned over the years that one of the things that I can do to be a good neighbor is to help people with their landscape projects. My wife would tell you this, I feel like I've done the landscaping for almost half my neighbors on my street. And you know, I'm a Kentucky boy, I grew up in Kentucky working on horse farms and tobacco farms and corn farms and hay farms. So I love working with my hands, it's just fulfilling for me. And so I, that's one way I can serve my neighbors. And I remember I had a specific neighbor when I lived back in Arizona, and I'm not gonna lie to you, she was just a ratchety old woman. She was just was, just giving you the truth, right? Truth and grace. And like nobody liked her, and she was just, just a hard woman. And she'd just yell at all the kids that were in the neighborhood. And, and I just kept going over to her yard and you know, picking the weeds and spraying her weeds, killing scorpions, it's Arizona. And, and I'd let her know, hey, I just want to let you know that I, I did these things. And with time, her heart became softened to me. And it actually gave me an opportunity when she was experiencing pretty major medical concerns. She invited me to come over and pray with her. It's amazing what will happen when we just follow through on the one thing that Jesus made abundantly clear. Guys, don't get this one wrong. Because if you get this one wrong, I promise you, you're going to end up in some kind of pseudo-Christianity that may make sense to you, but it doesn't make sense to me. I want to show you something. When it comes to our faith, I hope that all of us would say that the main thing is the gospel. But what is the motivation behind the gospel? Well, it's to give everyone a chance for redemption, everlasting life, a new beginning, and Jesus knows better this than uh, better. He knows this better than anyone. And so, what if his motive wasn't just to kind of give us this code to live by, so that we could love people, and by loving people, we show our heavenly Father that we love Him with all of our heart, soul, and mind? What if He was also showing us the best way to remove obstacles to get people to Him? I mean, think about it. Have you ever seen somebody come to Jesus 
on the other side of losing an argument where it's like, <laughs> that was a great point, Greg. I'm going to give my life to God. You got me on that one. You know, maybe you're on the sidewalk walking down through downtown and somebody's yelling at you with a bullhorn that you're going to hell and you're going to burn in hell if you don't repent now for the forgiveness of your sins. And somebody actually comes over and says, I've never thought about that. I'm going to give my life to Jesus now. Where do I sign up? It doesn't happen, but how many people do you know that came to faith in Christ on the other side of someone's compassion, someone's love, someone serving them, someone making sacrifices for them because I've known that to happen a lot. And so watch this. When we love others like Christ, not only is it the greatest way of showing God to a lost and broken world, but we're actually showing people that God loves them. Don't miss it. Jesus gave us a very clear picture. Guys, this is your path. This is number one right here. And when you do this well, you're gonna show your heavenly father that you love him with all your heart, soul, and mind because this is what he's asked you to do. And so if you want to show God that you do truly love him, you're going to love people through service and sacrifice. And when you do that, you're also simultaneously going to show other people, oftentimes the people that you're serving, that God actually sees them, that God knows them, that he loves them, and that he's got a purpose for them. I call this the genius of Jesus. Now, along the way, we probably asked the question at some point in time, well, what happens when we love people and we serve people and we help people and they still reject Jesus? Listen to me. We still made the world around us better. We still grew in character and compassion. We still reflected the life of our Lord and leader, and at least we gave them an accurate, an accurate picture of what it means to be a Christ follower because Lord knows there's a lot of inaccurate ones. I think about the people that claim the name of Jesus, but they're like, you know what, I'm just gonna kind of bow out of the whole church scene. I'm gonna bow out of hanging out with other Christians or whatever that looks like, and I'm just gonna kind of do my own thing. I mean, my God's gonna be up in the mountains. I can worship up there, and they have all these things that they say, and so they kind of bow out and Oftentimes, those are the same people that judge what we're doing in here. And again, these are Christians, and they judge me for doing church the way that we do. And they just criticize from a distance. Because let's be honest, it's so, e it's so much easier to label people from a distance. But what's the play there? Think about it. What's the play there? I just had this conversation last week with somebody who doesn't want to come and be a part of a church. They'd just rather be in the mountains. And I'm like, how many people have you seen come to Jesus up in the mountains when you're up there? Crickets. I mean, what's the play there? You're just gonna judge people to Jesus? How's that working for you? Let me show you what Paul says in Romans chapter two. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you a mere human being pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Ready, don't miss this, church. Not realizing that it's God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. If God's kindness 
is what's intended to lead us to repentance. Guys, what do you think will likely help us the most when we're trying to remove obstacles to get people to Jesus? So when Jesus narrows all this down, again, to one thing, remember, he's not giving us a rule. It's not about establishing another religious law. He's showing us the best way to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and at the same time showing us how best to represent him to a lost and broken world so ultimately that we can get people to the feet of Jesus. Amen? Let me close with this. A little earlier, I mentioned how as a staff, we do something here called the Four Disciplines of Execution, and it's a way for us to kind of narrow our focus down to one wildly important goal. And we just did this here recently, recently, and we determined that our wildly important goal for the next six months is going to be to create an invitation culture here at Trace. And as a staff, there's about 10 of us on staff, and so as a staff, we've decided that what we're gonna do is we're gonna hand out five invitation cards every single week. And if we all follow through on handing out five invitation cards to somebody every single week, that will equal 1,300 invitations just from our staff in a six-month period. And by the way, I did the math. If each of you did that as well, just hand out five invitation cards each and every week based on about 550 adults that are in here on any given Sunday, that's over 8,000 invitations that will be extended to someone. But let me be clear about this. I don't necessarily want you just going through this exercise of handing out an invitation card. My greater hope is that you become the invitation. Like truly. My greater hope is that our lives become the invitation because of how we're living, more specifically how we're loving people through serving them, making sacrifices for them where we can. And my hope is that as we do that consistently, that people just look at us and say, what is it about you? Like, what is it about you? You're not like other people. And maybe in that moment we get to, yeah, maybe make an invitation to church, but more importantly, get to introduce people to the Jesus that we've come to love dearly. And if we'll do that, man, there'll be a day where you'll get to heaven. (laughs) I believe this so much. There'll be a day where you get to heaven and somebody will come up to you. I don't know if it's Peter or Paul or somebody. And they're gonna tell you this, ready? They're gonna say, hey, there's some people up here because of you. Do you wanna meet them? I don't know about you, but if there's anything in my life that I would want to look forward to, it's that moment of how Jesus used me with all my brokenness and flaws and baggage in the rearview mirror to still make an everlasting difference in someone else's life. Trace, may our lives truly become an invitation and remove obstacles so we can get people to the feet of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. God, thank you so much for making it clear I definitely don't ever feel like I'm the smartest person in the room and it's always helped for me to break things down and make them as practical and as simple as possible. And I'm so thankful you did this, that you didn't leave it ambiguous, that you didn't make us 
have to navigate through a lot of spiritual rhetoric to arrive at what is the most important. You made it abundantly clear, not through just your words, but through your example. So God, when we drift, we get off track, and when we even allow our faith to get caught up in the wrong things, will you bring us back to true north? Father, will you help us to get back to just loving people through service and sacrifice? Would you help us to stop saying no to the Holy Spirit's convictions when you obviously are trying to move us in a specific direction? So God, as we're getting ready to go into a time of response here in a moment, I pray that you would move in our hearts, in our minds, and in our souls to help us to process through how our lives can become an invitation because of the way that we live. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Check out this video. I first heard about Trace uh, through another family that comes here. And I heard an echo from a couple of members, uh, namely Julie. I was already participating at another church. Um, but as Pastor Aaron would put it, uh, participation is not necessarily watching from a screen. Julie was definitely uh, not necessarily the loudest voice, but the most persistent voice. That is something that she's great at. Um, and I know that she was persistent because she saw maybe a gap that I was missing. Yeah, just something came over me one day of I really need to invite him, and I think I've probably invited him every time I saw him. Just a reminder that the invitation's open, we'd love to have you. First time walking in feels like any church. You know, you try to be open-minded, and there's always that fear of whether or not it's where you belong, or it's where God wants you to be. And so walking through especially after talking with Pastor Aaron about it. Um, truth and grace really means community. It just was super easy for us to walk in and feeling the welcome and the warmth that this church wants forever. There's been no hesitation for me to invite my family. I've been so comfortable that I'm more comfortable than I ever have in 30 years to invite friends. I got to meet Julie and she just made a big influence on me wanting to be here. It's definitely helped me on my path and um, building a relationship with God by being able to come here and serve for Him and meet new people. I went to camp and that was a big influence on my life too. That was another thing that Julie was pushing me to go to. It, it led me to getting baptized and found my family here. Yeah, I remember being there that day and watching Manny go up and hearing over the headsets, like Manny just grabbed a towel, like, and then to see the rest of the family follow suit, it just was, yeah, just really eye-opening that extending an invitation can, can be all the difference in the world for a whole family. So yeah, it was pretty incredible. Getting to uh, work on those cameras every Sunday, if we have a baptism and I get to film it or just watch it on the screens. It, it, it makes me feel so spiritually filled. And it just brings me so much joy to see that other people 
are growing and getting further on their path and walk with God and hearing about how many people come just from watching the online services. Hey, we, we filmed that. Like, we brought people here. That's super cool. It's, it's a blessing. It's not a job if you love what you're doing. And, and that's exactly what this is. It's not really a job. It's, uh, it's an opportunity. And I think you put it this way every Sunday. It's, it's an opportunity that we can present truth and grace from a different lens.